You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Before the episode, I want to thank my newest patrons. Thanks, Tara, and thank you, Mo. Thank you both so much for your support. Patrons get access to one fully produced mini-episode every month. I call them blindsides. This month's will serve as an end cap to my series on aquatic monsters and it will help to transition to the next series. Patrons also get an ad-free feed of the show, teasers before episodes, and all for a dollar a month. At higher tiers, starting at $3 and more, you get early access to episodes and exclusive gifts, like copies of my novel. Head on over to patreon.com slash historicalblindness and help support your favorite show. Now, on to the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and I'll be your guide on this monster hunt. I apologize for any huskiness in my voice. I'm still getting over a bout of bronchitis as I record this and a blindside minisode. In this episode, which started out as a blind spot but has expanded to a full-length episode, as a coda to my series on sea serpents, I have a look at arguably the most famous of all water-dwelling supposedly dinosaurian monsters. As I mentioned in the last installment, sightings of sea monsters fell off rather dramatically after the Daedalus encounter and those that followed. Some have looked to this as proof that there had never been true sea serpent encounters, but rather a series of hoaxes and mistakes while others have suggested that this just reflects the fact that more and more ships at sea may have driven them into hiding, especially once those ships became motorized. The we-scared-it-off theory, after all, had seemed reasonable enough to explain the gradual falling off of sea serpent sightings in Gloucester Bay, New England, which had been crowded with tourist-laden ferries and fishing vessels all hunting for the creature. But the mid-19th century would not be the last time that people believed they saw a massive, long-necked, water-dwelling creature that would be termed a monster. While the seas remained mostly calm and untroubled by serpents, in the 1930s and ever since, sightings surged in a rather unexpected place, inland on a lake as though the great sea serpent had abandoned its saltwater habitat for the freshwaters of a lake in the Scottish Highlands, southwest of Inverness. Like the great sea serpent, this creature is usually described as serpentine, owing to the fact that when it breaks the surface of the lake in which it supposedly dwells, it is seen as a series of humps. 
Sometimes, though, witnesses of this creature are graced with a view of its long neck and small head, and perhaps a glimpse of its bulky body, which has led to a popular conception of it as being akin to the plesiosaur. Although the fact that this one supposedly lives in a freshwater lake would mean that it would more likely be of the family Leptoclididae, genus Leptoclitus, or perhaps a genus and species of polycotylid that recent researchers have proposed, dubbing them occultonectians, or hidden swimmers, and suggesting they survived the extinction of similar plesiosaurs, at least for a while, by taking refuge in and adapting to bodies of fresh water, adaptation that resulted in the development of longer necks. But rather than speculating exactly what kind of surviving dinosaur this creature is, it is far more logical to first consider the reliability of evidence that there is anything at all so large or unusual dwelling in this particular lake. Thank you for listening to The Monster of Loch Ness, Delusion or Denizen of the Deep. Popular belief in the monster affectionately known as Nessie began in 1933, in March, when a couple, the McKays, who had been staying at a nearby hotel, were motoring along an old, narrow road by the lake. Mrs. McKay saw a huge black form rolling in the lake and told her husband John to pull over. Once he had stopped the car, John could only see the ripples, about a mile and a half away, but even from these he discerned that something very large had caused them. To Mrs. McKay, the ripples appeared to be a wake made by something just below the surface, and she watched its progress across the otherwise placid lake. Then she saw it again. Black humps, two of them, the one in front smaller than that behind it, rising and sinking as though the entire form were undulating. It turned and circled halfway around before sinking finally and disappearing. A few months later, in June, a crew of workmen spotted a large body and head emerge from the water in the wake of a passing boat, a sighting easily waved away as an optical illusion created by the waves themselves. But then in July, another motoring couple, the Spicers of London, saw a creature emerge from the bushes on the side of the roadway, or at least part of one. It looked like a thick appendage, trunk-like, perhaps a long neck, held horizontally, wavering over the surface of the road. Then it crossed the road in a jerking fashion, its body filling the entire roadway and then suddenly gone in the direction of the lake. Mr. Spicer estimated it was at least 25 feet long, with dark gray skin like that of an elephant. After this sighting, the lake monster had become a news item, with press reports at first suggesting in a measured way that the Spicers had just seen an enormous otter carrying its young on its back. Perhaps not surprisingly then, with the press attention, sightings increased to about once a month. In August, more witnesses saw a disturbance trailing behind a steamboat on the lake insisting that because there were calm waters between the boat and the disturbance, it couldn't have been the boat's wake. Then one Mrs. McLennan saw a large animal sunning itself on a ledge, and when she called to her family, it lurched clumsily and rolled into the water. 
In October, a crew member on a boat towing a barge saw what looked like a mound of water moving toward them like a wave from the side of the lake. In November, Hugh Gray took the first known photo of the supposed creature during his walk home from church. He claimed to have seen it raising its head above the water and lashing its tail. His photo, which saw extensive reprinting in newspapers in December, shows a vaguely serpentine S-shape on the surface of the water, obscured by a kind of hazy mist. This photo has been variously said by different photographic experts to show signs of having been retouched or damaged, and to show no signs of having been tampered with, leaving us, almost a hundred years later, to merely wonder at it. In December, as papers reported on Gray's photographic evidence, the excitement or hysteria heated to a fever pitch. One Mrs. Reed, while motoring by, saw an animal lying in a glade very near where Mrs. McLennan had earlier seen a creature sunning itself, and she described it in much the same terms, huge, fleshy, and clumsy like a hippopotamus. The same month, the first movie film evidence appeared, taken with a 16mm camera by Malcolm Irvine and a film production crew that was in the area specifically hoping to film the creature that had been in the news. His film, which was said by those who viewed it, including reporters from the Times, to have shown a humped creature swimming on the surface and moving both tail and fins, has, unfortunately, some might say conveniently, been lost. But it did its job, nonetheless. On the 21st of December, the London Daily Mail, a newspaper with a long and dubious history, declared, quote, Monster of Loch Ness is not legend, but a fact, end quote. And in a publicity stunt, reported that it had hired Marmaduke Wetherell, a filmmaker with a reputation as a big game hunter, to search for further proof of Nessie's existence. Think of Wetherell as an early 20th century precursor to the many reality TV cryptid hunters that populate the backwaters of cable television today. And remember him, for we will return to him shortly. While Wetherell performed his search for Nessie tracks along the shores of the loch, sightings continued into 1934. Just after the new year, a student named W. Arthur Grant, who might have been thought a reliable and scientific witness because he was training to be a veterinarian, nearly ran into something on a benighted road while riding his motorcycle. His headlight illuminated a massive creature with a flat head like that of an eel. It bounded from the bushes and across the road on flippers, its strong, round-tipped tail extended behind it, and it disappeared into the darkness, leaving behind only the sound of its splash as it entered the lock. The next month, by the light of a full moon, two girls likewise saw something huge that tapered down to a long tail cross the road in front of them on short appendages that they called legs rather than flippers and head toward the water. And finally, in April of 1934, I'll end my recounting of the first and most prolific flap of Nessie sightings with the appearance of the most famous or infamous photo of the creature. It would come to be known as the 
quote-unquote surgeon's photo having been taken by a gynecologist named Robert Kenneth Wilson while on vacation with a friend. He admitted he had brought the camera hoping to snap a pic of the monster, although later he claimed he'd brought it to photograph birds. When the creature presented itself, he ran back to his car and returned just in time to take two photos, both of which show the shadow of a slender, curved object extending from the water's surface, the water rippling around it. For all the world, it looked like the body and arched neck and head of the Loch Ness Monster. When one considers the believability of these encounters, one might be tempted to dismiss the eyewitness testimony altogether, leaving only the harder evidence to evaluate. In fact, the simple fact that the story became a newspaper sensation within the first year tends to discredit most of the sightings as either hoaxes by attention seekers or mistakes by the overeager who had been caught up in the hysteria. But historical precedent for sightings of a creature in or around Loch Ness before 1933 might weaken this argument. In looking for pre-33 indications of Nessie's existence, one is invariably drawn into the realm of folklore. For example, the Scottish people originated largely in Ireland, and there is an ancient Irish tradition that sees in the reflection of bodies of water an inverted aquatic world where it was supposed there dwelled mirror-opposite creatures, like water cows and water horses. Tales told of these animals crossing over at times. Farmers had been known to harness their plows to a water horse. In Scottish lore, the water horse evolved to become the Kelpie, a shape-changing creature similar to the siren in its alluring behavior. And this certainly might apply to Nessie, when one considers the siren call it has had on many a monster and cryptid hunter. Further, more geographically specific folkloric evidence of the creature can be found in the 7th century writings of the Abbot of Iona, who biographized the 6th century life of St. Columba. In his work, St. Columba has numerous encounters with animals that show God has given him mastery over the creatures of the earth, such as snakes and boars. In one particular passage, the saint commands a monk to swim across the river Ness and bring back a boat. When a quote-unquote water beast appears and makes toward the monk, St. Columba cries out from the shore, quote, go no further, nor touch the man, go back. End quote. And the fearsome beast retreated. To most, in context with the rest of the stories told about St. Columba, this would seem a simple tall tale. But looking back at a story of a quote-unquote water beast in Ness, even if it was the river and not the loch, a modern reader cannot help but consider that this could be evidence of an aquatic monster in the area, even back then. And there are many accounts in far more modern times of giant eels or horse eels in the same area if one widens the scope of one's search beyond Loch Ness. Friend of the show Mike Dash has written of the 19th century reports of giant eels 
which have at least one thing going for them as explanations of Nessie, in that they are bottom dwellers that only surface occasionally, explaining why whatever is in Loch Ness is only glimpsed infrequently. He cites the memoir of a Scottish Catholic priest, who, writing about events in the middle of the 19th century, described lakes on Hebridean islands teeming with gigantic eels that travel overland from lake to lake. Dash also describes second-hand recollections of a huge, maned eel being caught in a canal lock in 1899 at Korpak, only about 26 miles southwest of the shores of Loch Ness, and how everyone believed it must have come down from Loch Ness, which supposedly had a reputation for monstrous serpents even then. As for Loch Ness itself, there were reports of sightings previous to the 1933 flap, such as in 1871 or 72, when D. McKenzie saw what he thought was a log suddenly come to life and churn up the water as it swam with great speed. Or in 1889, when Alexander MacDonald saw an unusual creature on the lake that he called, quote-unquote, the salamander and which Roderick Matheson, who frequently plied the waters of the loch on his schooner, called, quote, the biggest eel I ever saw in my life, with a neck like a horse and a mane somewhat similar, end quote. Then into the 20th century, when sometime during the first decade, a fisherman recalled having scared off a large beast with an eel's head and a tapering tail that lay still upon the surface of the loch when he cast his line near it. 1919, a 12-year-old boy named Jack Forbes drives a pony cart home through a stormy night with his father when a beast emerges from the trees, crosses the road, and splashes into the water. 1923, a chauffeur's headlamps catch a huge humped creature as his car rounds a bend and actually hears the thing grunting as it waddles away. 1926, Simon Cameron is watching some gulls on the water when suddenly they fly off screeching because something that looked like an overturned boat bursts to the surface, water washing down its sides. While some of these recollections may have been colored by or even invented to corroborate the later legend of Nessie, it does seem that Loch Ness had long been a place where people saw animals they believed were unusual. Now for a brief intermission. Hi, I'm Sean Munger, the host of the Second Decade podcast. On Second Decade, I bring you stories, true stories, from the 18-teens, the second decade of the 19th century, a fascinating time in history when our modern world began to emerge. The people you'll meet on Second Decade are a rogues gallery of colorful characters, not just heavy hitters like Napoleon, Thomas Jefferson, and Simone Bolivar, but a lot of people you've never heard of with fascinating stories, like the seal hunter marooned alone on a deserted island in 1812, or the dead woman buried in a box of tea who washed up on a Caribbean beach, or the real-life sea serpent that terrorized Gloucester, Massachusetts in 1817. So join me on Second Decade on a strange and colorful journey 200 years into the past. Find Second Decade on Apple Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. 
That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Do you find yourself captivated by the inexplicable, entranced by enigmas, and tantalized by the unknown? We are Shane and Josh Waters, brothers who will weave you through tales that have mystified us for years. From haunted hotels to inexplicable disappearances, our episodes offer you a panoramic view of the world's greatest mysteries, leaving no stone unturned, no clue unnoticed. With a gripping narrative, we invite you to join us on a journey into realms of the unexplained. We're unraveling the mysteries that have perplexed humanity for ages. So, armchair detectives, curious minds, and seekers of the strange, it's time to put on your headphones and dim the lights. Dive into the uncanny world of the Mystery Inc. podcast and prepare for a journey into the unknown that you'll never forget. And remember, some mysteries are better left unsolved, but not unexplored. Now, back to the show. Further supporting the idea that Loch Ness monster sightings have proven to be far more than a year-long flap, easily written off as mass hysteria, fueled by sensational journalism, is the fact that the sightings never really stopped. Roy McCall, a biologist working for University of Chicago, who took particular interest in Nessie, claimed there were more than 10,000 such reports and that he had personally reviewed nearly 3,000 published accounts of them. Certainly there are many hundreds of verifiable witness claims, with a more recent accounting estimating the number around 1,800. But more than these, there is a wealth of harder evidence as well. Including the aforementioned gray photo and the surgeon's photo, one tally has around 30 photos taken of Nessie, or what the photographers purport to be Nessie. Most of the time, they picture little more than shadowy humps on the water's surface that one might imagine could be breaching portions of the creature's neck or back, such as the Lachlan Stewart photo of 1951 and the Peter McNabb photo of 1955. Others, like the 1977 Anthony Shields photo and the 1982 Jennifer Bruce photo, seem to show the creature's head and long neck held elegantly straight up out of the water, like the surgeon's photo. Not all of these are easily available to the modern researcher, as some are in private collections and seem to have no extant copies. Such is also the case with movie films supposedly capturing the creature, which also may number as high as 30, ranging from older cinefilm reels to more modern video recordings. One of these, taken by a Dr. McRae around 1935 and said to show a slant-eyed, horned creature splashing the surface with its great reptilian tail, supposedly remains locked away in a vault in London awaiting its release at some uncertain future time when, quote, the public takes such matters seriously, end quote. This seems to be a common explanation for why some alleged films cannot be examined, 
such as the 1938 film made by London bank manager James Curry, which supposedly resides in the same vault as the McRae film. Then there are those films that have simply been lost, which includes the very first film made by the aforementioned Malcolm Irvine, likewise with a film made by one James Fraser the next year, which seems to have rather suddenly vanished after being screened for the Linnaean Society of London, whose members thought it pictured a seal or otter rather than a monster. In 1936, when Malcolm Irvine managed to capture Nessie on film yet again, he once more promptly lost the footage. These instances of poor custodianship of evidence do little to inspire confidence in the credibility of the evidence itself. Beyond the suspicious disappearance of evidence to cause one to look askance, there is also a history of hoaxes about as long as the history of Nessie herself. Remember the actor, film director, and quote-unquote big game hunter Marmaduke Wetherell that I said to keep in your memory? Within days of his arrival at the lake, after being hired by the Daily Mail to quote-unquote track the Loch Ness Monster, Wetherell made it known that he had discovered Nessie's huge tracks and sent plaster casts of them to the London Natural History Museum. The museum eventually revealed that they appeared to be hippopotamus prints. But Wetherell hadn't discovered a rogue hippo living around the lock. Rather, he had taken a stuffed hippo's hoof that had been part of an umbrella stand, attached a stick to it, and used it like a stamp. Years later, in 1960, a young firefighter named Peter O'Connor was caught making hoax photographs by inflating a plastic sack and weighting it down with stones. In 1972, Frank Searle, frustrated at not being able to catch a glimpse of the genuine article, faked some later discredited photos using logs and other objects and by pasting images of brontosaurs onto pictures of water. Then there were the remarkably clear photos taken by Anthony Shields in 1977, whose reputation as a kook already put his pictures in doubt. Shields was a self-styled psychic and wizard who claimed to have actually conjured Nessie to the surface through the use of ancient magic. Close examination of his photo showed that ripples on the water's surface could be seen through the creature's neck a sure sign of double exposure. By the time the 1980s and 90s came around, older, long-respected photographic evidence also began to be discredited. The first was Lachlan Stewart's photograph of humps on the water from 1951, which Stewart had actually admitted to a local was accomplished by wrapping hay bales in tarps and floating them in a row. Finally, in 1994, a confession revealed that the most famous photo of all, the surgeon's photo, had been a crude fake perpetrated in collaboration with that original hoaxer, Marmaduke Wetherell. Wetherell's own stepson, two years before he died, had admitted that Wetherell had conspired with his sons to concoct the photo by affixing a plastic head and neck to a toy submarine and photographing it in a calm inlet of the lake. The gynecologist Robert Kenneth Wilson had been a co-conspirator in agreeing to say he had taken the photo, 
since Wetherell had already been discredited. Some have cast doubt on this confession as being itself a hoax, suspicious about the perceived size of the object, whether the photo could have been taken in a sheltered cove, and whether a toy submarine could have supported the weight of a false neck. But even most Nessie believers have come to accept that the surgeon's photo, long the single greatest piece of evidence in favor of Nessie's existence, was nothing but a fraud. Even if one took the surgeon's photo as authentic, it still does not stand as unimpeachable evidence of Nessie's existence. For ever since the beginning of the 1933 Loch Ness Monster flap, there have been plenty of convincing answers for what people really see and what is actually pictured in photographs. Most sightings of humps in the water are explainable as waves. Think about the sightings of humps in the wake of a passing boat I mentioned. And we now know that water sometimes behaves strangely with odd standing waves or solitons that appear to be immobile humps with water washing over them. When sightings cannot be accounted for by the water itself, some other more recognizable animal usually does the trick, like a bathing deer or most commonly an otter. Even birds like cormorants flying close to the water with their wings disturbing the surface might appear at a distance to be a series of moving humps, leaving a wake. As for more exotic animals, a bathing elephant extending its trunk from the surface would certainly seem to fit the bill, especially considering some early reports that described its flesh as elephant-like. And it just so happens that a circus was in the area in 1933. The showman who owned the circus, Bertram Mills, was known to let his performing animals bathe in the lock, and he seemed to encourage the excitement, offering a 20,000 pounds sterling reward to any who could capture the monster. This was a monstrous sum indeed, equivalent to almost $2 million today, and some have suggested he only advertised such an exorbitant reward because he knew the monster didn't exist, perhaps because he knew his elephants had been mistaken for the beast. But one does not need to look so far for so complicated an answer either. In addition to the extensive photographs and films taken above water, there have been numerous underwater photos taken, as well as many sonar contacts. And all can be very convincingly explained by fish activity and debris. In the same way, some humps on the surface can be attributed to huge bottom-feeding sturgeon visiting the surface or to simple logs and other vegetable matter. This seems to be a clear instance in which Occam's razor cuts to the heart of the matter. These prosaic explanations of sightings are far simpler than the notion that a heretofore undiscovered species of lake monster exists and may represent proof of surviving dinosaurs. And more than this, there are further problems of feasibility making the lake monster hypothesis fundamentally untenable. First, there is the fact that for such a species to have survived, there must needs be a substantial breeding population, 
not just a solitary monster or a couple of mates, which conflicts with how infrequently they are seen, especially considering how intently people search for them. Then there is the fact that the loch is simply not big enough to contain such a population, nor does it contain enough food to sustain them. Some have suggested that there must be a hidden underwater channel from this freshwater lake to the ocean. But if this were the case, the loch being so far above sea level would mean that the lake waters would have long ago emptied into the sea. When Occam's razor cuts so easily and unequivocally through a popular belief like this, it must be assumed to be false. And this means that the same must hold true for all the other supposed denizens of lakes that have surfaced since Nessie. Ogopogo in Okanagan Lake, Tessie in Lake Tahoe, Champ in Lake Champlain, and Bessie in Lake Erie, all must be considered with the utmost skepticism, their very existence held in doubt. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. I want to thank my dedicated partner patrons, Marina, Joe, Jacob, Robert, Diane, and David. You saw something in me, and you've never given up on convincing others that it's there. Some music on this episode was provided by film composer Alex Kish. Check out his work at alexkishmusic.com. While you're online, visit the blog at historicalblindness.com to see images and find links to further reading and citations for academic sources. You can also find book recommendations for almost every episode topic on the Books tab, as well as a link to my own book, Manuscript Found, a historical novel about the rise of the anti-Masonic political party and its connection to the composition of the Book of Mormon. If you liked the episode or are a fan of the show, give it a rating and review wherever you can especially iTunes, and follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, when someone tells you they have proof, but they can't share it because the world simply isn't ready yet, just smile and nod and keep looking for some real evidence. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. History isn't black and white yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.